I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, how the Food Network became an unlikely success. Food was something that was on public television. There was no actual money to be made. It was not a viable business. Then, why watching people cook might make us cook less. The advent of food TV and the explosion of it has raised the bar and made it that much more complicated and uh, intimidating for people to cook. Plus, sure, Americans want good food, but we're also huge fans of choices. The basic model of the American food industry, and it's not a conspiracy or anything like that, this is what people until recently preferred, is to offer you all kinds of different choices. So it's not just tomato sauce. It's tomato sauce with garlic, with basil, with additional olive oil, uh, with uh, clams. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Often cultural touchstones don't appear until you're looking in the rearview mirror. The early days of something big may not feel particularly notable, and people who are there in those early days may not understand the significance of their decisions until much later. Which is why a lunch about 25 years ago at a restaurant in New York did not seem too important to Sarah Moulton. At the time of the lunch, Moulton was in her early 40s. She'd already had a pretty impressive career, most famously as an assistant to the TV chef Julia Child. But being on TV, she knew that was not for her. You know, I had nothing against Julia doing it. I thought she, of course, was fantastic. But I thought, you know, people who want to be on TV need too much attention. Uh, You know, they're sort of look at me, look at me. Uh, And that's just not who I am. At the lunch, Moulton talked with an executive named Ree Schoenfeld, a giant in a field that was about to explode, cable television. Schoenfeld had helped Ted Turner launch a little network called CNN, and he smelled money in a new venture, an all-food network. Moulton, though, had a few questions. Really? How are they going to fill 24 hours, and Mm -hmm. who's going to do it? And Schoenfeld, I should say, knew nothing whatsoever about cooking. In fact, he didn't even have a kitchen in his apartment in New York. That's how little he cared about food. Alan Salkin is a former reporter for The New York Times, and he's the author of the book From Scratch, Inside the Food Network. He notes that Schoenfeld and his wife had actually had the kitchen removed from their home. They were great New Yorkers. They did um, have a a coffee maker because some things are really too important to leave to chance. And Salkin says many thought Schoenfeld was on a doomed mission, that a network all about food was destined to fail. Food was something that was on public television, mostly produced out of WGBH in Boston, and that there was no actual money to be made. This was, um, you know, shows like obviously Julia Child, The Frugal Gourmet, Yan Can Cook, that were, you know, popular on weekend mornings. Some of them run at, ran at night here and there. But nobody had actually made any money off of it except maybe the stars who were able to sell a few cookbooks. It was not a viable business. At the time of his lunch with Sarah Moulton, it's likely that Schoenfeld could never have anticipated the strange cultural phenomenon that his network would turn out to be, and the way in which it would affect how Americans ate and maybe how they cooked. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, though, back to the lunch. So Moulton is sitting there at this fancy restaurant, which she remembers as specializing in cheese, and the executives offer her a job, head of the kitchens at this new Food Network thing, but no benefits. 
Well, Moulton needed benefits, so she turned them down. They made another job offer, which she also rejected. And then they said, okay, how about being on a show? That caught Moulton's attention. She had just done her first on-air segment on Good Morning America, and it had gone great. So she figured, sure, why not? She'd do a screen test. So I did asparagus vinaigrette, solmoniere. I don't really remember what I made for dessert because it was so stressful. I was mm. so bad. Um, it's just so different to be alone in front of the cameras. And I said everything I wanted to. I cooked everything I was supposed to. I got it done in 15 minutes. But I never once smiled. And my hands never stopped shaking. Hmm. So when I held up the asparagus to show what a good asparagus should look like, as opposed to a floppy one, even the straight one was shaking. <laughs> and so I walked out of there. I said, OK, what the heck, what the hey? I didn't really want to do that anyway. But as Moulton herself admits, the executives were desperate, and she ended up on air. She had to stand on a riser because she was short. She had to pretend there was an oven in the kitchen, but there really wasn't, so people had to sit under the counter and hand her finished dishes. She had a day job with benefits and would dash over to cook on TV at night. And the show took phone calls, which occasionally would be obscene. The whole operation in those early days was kind of a wreck, says journalist Alan Salkin. And Julia Child, of all people, was brought in as a consultant. So she would show up, you know, now and then at this channel, which was actually located near the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel uh, in New York, which in that era, um, you know, you might watch a certain HBO show about the start of the adult film industry to understand the kind of um, ladies of the night who were circling around the entrance to the Food Network that Julia Child came to know every time she would arrive uh, and walk up the stairs and say, hello, ladies. Still, despite the unusual geography of the Food Network and the disorder that Sarah Moulton was witnessing behind the scenes, there was another side to this coin, which Moulton quickly started to pick up on. I'm getting recognized everywhere. You know, it was one of those situations where, you know, I started thinking, oh, geez, I need to wear makeup walking down the street because people will be horrified when they see what I actually look like. I mean, don't get me wrong. I never wore makeup as a chef. I didn't think it was important. But then I, I realized that people had gotten so used to the way I looked on TV that maybe I need to walk around in public like that. But if that many people were recognizing me, wow, people were watching. The seeds of something huge had been planted. Moulton sensed it, and others must have too. And those seeds were taking root, even though, as Salkin notes, the network was limping along. There was something called the no-stopping rule. They simply wanted to shoot half-hour shows straight into the can because mm. they couldn't afford to edit them. So no matter what would happen, they would just keep rolling. It was a few years later that uh, Mario Batali made his first show and uh, ended up cutting his hand, and they just wouldn't stop. And so he had to you know, wrap his hand in a towel and lean on it and then just keep uh, stirring with the other hand. They were that stretched for cash that he cut his hand and they would not stop. The Food Network didn't actually make money uh, for its first 10 years. Okay. When Reese started it, he came up with this business plan in which the cable companies would not pay subscriber fees to the network. They felt that the only way that the network could get carried on cable TV across the country was if it was given to the cable companies for free. Hmm. So the idea was they would make money just from advertising. Now, this plan didn't 
actually work. And it, it took about 10 years until that expired for the Food Network to start to get subscriber fees. Hmm. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that in these early days, you, you talked about Julia Child was sort of around and about, um, but didn't have her own show, is that they thought if we can just get famous people on, and and one example here is Debbie Fields, who was famous as Mrs. Fields, like the, the head of a cookie empire, um, that if we can just get famous chefs on and put a camera on them, everything will work out. And it turned out that was wrong. Uh, why was it wrong? The idea that just throwing famous people on television would work was crazy because it's actually very hard to cook and be on television at the same time. Almost everybody who does it the first time ends up cutting themselves because you're trying to look look at the camera and smile and do stuff with your hands and tell stories. And it's actually a very rare skill. There's a couple up in um, Massachusetts named Lou and Lisa Eckes who became the ones that they would send chefs to to train them how to be on television. And they would do things like tape uh, a picture of your dog to the camera and just say, talk to the dog in order to calm people down. It's it's actually a very complicated skill that not everybody is good at. Mm. So talk a little bit about Emeril Lagasse. Um, he, in some ways, was like this breakthrough talent. It's I would say for the for the Food Network, he yeah. was he was a good chef. So you know what he was not an actor or anything, and at least at the beginning, he was really somebody who worked on on television. How'd they find him, and and how'd that work out? Well, Emeril was thrown onto TV on a show that was really beneath him at first. It was called How to Boil Water. And literally the first episode was put water in pot, turn on stove, <laughs> make sure that flame is actually coming out because there's something called a pilot light on your stove. And this really fit in with Reese Schoenfeld's you know, vision that there were divorced, newly divorced men out there who literally did not know how to boil water. I was going to say, it, it seems to fit into Rhys Schoenfeld's uh, life, too. Like, this is the guy who doesn't have a kitchen. It seems just about... No, I don't know that Rhys knew how to boil okay. water. Um, and he, he never had to. You know, all he had to do was start cable channels. Other people were supposed to boil water for him. So this was beneath Emeril because he was already a, a well-decorated chef. You know, Emeril was one of the great chefs of the 80s. And also during that time, he met a guy named Shep Gordon. There's a, a great documentary right. about him made by Mike Myers called Supermensch. And Shep was, Shep was the one who came up with the idea that chefs are like rock stars and that they should be branded. So Shep started representing Emeril. So as Emeril got better and better on camera... And they gave him better shows after um, How to Boil Water because it was really beneath him. He then did a show called Essence of Emerald. And then it was finally uh, Emerald Live in which he really came into his own. See, everybody's got one of those comfort foods. I actually have several. (laughs) Depending on what kind of comforting I need at the time, you know? Like, you know, when I'm feeling achy or it's cold outside, I love making kicked up hot chocolate. So I'm going to make a kicked up hot chocolate for you tonight. He became the signature star of the early days of Food mm-hmm. Network. He would 
throw garlic and hot sauce onto stuff. He was yelling, bam! I remember um, it. I remember yes. it. Yes. And, and, and that became, it was on almost every night. It wasn't actually live. It was taped. He had a band. It was like The Tonight Show. And it was this weirdly exciting kind of programming that was centered around food. And it really was that show that young people started to watch. And a lot of... Uh, kids who were at home watching Emerald Live and getting excited about food and music and yelling and hot stuff and garlic are the ones who are now running some of the best restaurants in America. Hmm. There's a a scene that you talk about that I love where Emerald gets out of a car to do, um, I think he's going to do like a live taping of his show um, in front of a studio audience. And there are people like he gets out of the car and he sees people lined up down the block, parents and these little kids. And somebody around him is like, oh, my gosh, like, why are parents bringing little kids to this? They're going to be screaming and they're going to be crying and this is going to be a disaster and it's live. And he finds out that it wasn't the parents who brought the kids. It was the kids who brought the parents. Well, you know what? That's In fact, that's my story. You know, I, I uh, grew up in a house where my mom was not a very good cook. My dad would cook like twice a year, you know, for holidays, <laughs> making basically like, you know, potato pancakes. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that good food could be cooked in your house, basically. So when I saw the Frugal Gourmet on PBS making, you know, these delicious recipes from around the world, um, I got super excited. And it led me into this world, ultimately, of writing about food and media. So this is what happened. A lot of kids were at home and they weren't beholden to the normal television networks. They were clicking around after <laughs> school and they found things like Emerald Live and then Sarah Moulton on Cooking Live, uh, who was really teaching them knife skills. In, in my house, we didn't even have a chef's knife. We didn't know there was such a thing as a chef's knife. <laughs> You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Alan Salkin, author of the book From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. So there was an article, and I still remember – I remember reading it when it came out, and I remember it to this day. It was um, in 2009, and it was the food writer Michael Pollan wrote this big New York Times magazine article. And I'm going to quote you a little bit from it. And he said, quote, here's what I don't get. How is it that we are so eager to watch other people browning beef cubes on screen, but so much less eager to brown them ourselves? And and Pollan also said that the rise of celebrity chefs has, quote, paradoxically coincided with the rise of fast food, home meal replacements, and the decline and fall of everyday home cooking. Alan Salkin, is it a paradox or does it like somehow make total and complete sense to you what has happened? Kara, there's something um, also on cable and on the internet called pornography. And generally what's happening in pornography is that what's happening on the screen is a lot more exciting than what's happening in your own house. Mm -hmm. So that is also true about cooking on television. Generally, now the televisions are so big that it almost looks like you're looking at your own kitchen. It's high def. It's like a window, Mm -hmm. except the kitchen is probably neater than your own kitchen, more updated. And the person cooking is probably more beautiful than the person (laughs) cooking in your own kitchen. And the food that's being produced is probably more beautiful than anything you can imagine Mm -hmm. producing. So there's a lot of people who would sit at home eating a handful of Doritos, imagining that they were eating, you know, uh, 
chicken a la king or whatever you can imagine right. them cooking on television. Right. So I, I think the general knowledge about food is way higher than it used to be. That's why restaurant menus uh, le- read like novels now. The descriptions of the food you know, has to be in-depth. The waiters all have to be able to answer the sourcing of the food. What farm is it from? Um, and so people are more discriminating about what they eat, but there's almost something scary about trying to reproduce it in your house. Mm. Um, it's also, there's also, I wrote a piece recently for BuzzFeed um, that it turns out that watching, if you watch food on TV, you're more likely to eat a higher calorie meal right after watching it. So in, despite the chefs all telling us to eat healthy, et cetera, we're more listening to the chefs who are telling us to eat butter and to enjoy ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and I would say being a fairly big watcher of the Food Network, I don't think they mostly are telling us to eat healthy. I mean, I think that the things that are popular – from cake competitions to Iron Chef or what it's mostly about winning or producing something you think you would like to eat. It's not really about um, keeping you as a person healthy, even if that means like a little less butter. The job of Food Network is not to teach us how to cook well or to cook healthy. The job of Food Network is to sell washing machines Mm -hmm. and Priuses. (laughs) They are in the business of entertaining us and selling us products. They don't, I'm sorry to tell people, they don't actually care how we eat. Finally, um, let me ask you about the future. Um, What do you think, the Food Network is now in this universe. I mean, ironically, it was born and it was dreamt up because there were going to be so many channels through which people could get information. Well, now there are so many more channels uh, than there were 25 years ago through which people can get information. Um, And it has to compete with people cooking on YouTube and, um, you know, people seeing little cute, highly produced videos of recipes on Facebook. Um, What do you where do you see the Food Network going and what are the challenges from here? It's very easy to predict what's going to happen with food television and the Food Network. All you got to do is look at music, okay? Music, pop music, rock and roll music had its peak in its era. And the classic rock era of the 60s and 70s, those bands, there, no one's creating a new, you know, Beatles or Led Zeppelin or whoever, Um you know, or Neil Young, these are the ones who are still dominating. And that's what happened with food stars. There was an era in which the classic food stars were created. And where are we with music now? There's all kinds of streaming services. You can listen to anything you want. There are stars at various levels, but there's no mega, mega stars who can sell out stadiums, maybe a few, you know, Beyonce um, and and that level. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very hard to get into that pantheon now. Mm -hmm. But what's good good news is you can listen to anything you want wherever you want. And that's what's happening with food. There's Food Network's dominance over the culture is not going to come back any more than there's going to be a band like the Beatles that dominates pop music. It's just going to be this diverse array of content that we can access whenever we want. And hopefully through word of mouth or other means, we can be directed towards things that really interest us. Alan Salkin is a former reporter for The New York Times. He's the author of the book, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. Alan, thank you so much. This is great, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. 
Celebrity chef Sarah Moulton, who talked about her nervousness on TV earlier, said that the Food Network and the whole food scene in general has changed drastically when it comes to gender. We will have a story from Moulton on how male chefs were prioritized in the early days of the Food Network that's on our website, innovationhub.org. When I was a kid, one of my favorite home-cooked dinners was pasta with cheese sauce. The cheese at my house was powdered and came in a packet, and you sprinkled it on, hoping that some lumps of the salty goodness did not break apart when the pasta was stirred. It wasn't until I started watching people cooking on TV that I realized you could make pasta with cheese sauce without a packet. What I didn't know then was that I was living in the future, a world in which cooking from scratch has become something that very few Americans do. Indeed, this is a world in which even boiling pasta may be kind of asking a lot. The decline of cooking marks a shift in culture, but it also marks a decline in industries that have been powerful for a long time, like the grocery industry. Visits to grocery stores have dropped nearly 30% in just the last dozen years. Industry analyst Eddie Yoon has watched as this decline, he calls it a bloodbath, has taken place. He's the founder of the advisory firm and think tank Eddie Would Grow and has written about how Americans are cooking less in Harvard Business Review. Eddie, thanks for being here. Thanks, Cara, for having me. So you've talked about cooking as a hobby, basically, sort of not a component uh, anymore of everyday American life. Why do you think of cooking as a hobby? Yeah, it, the uh, analogy that came to mind uh, was sewing. And I, this is uh, front and center for me because my wife has picked up kind of crafts and sewing uh, in a big way as a hobby over the last 10 plus years or so, ever, ever since we had kids um, and she stopped her job as a nurse. She was looking for something that had kind of forward progress in her life and crafting and sewing was that. And she started sewing, you know, uh, aprons and pillows. But then she started to make these kind of handcrafted handbags for uh, our kids' teachers in elementary school, and people were just kind of shocked that anyone still did this. And what occurred to me was over my two decades that I've done growth strategy work, uh, a lot of it in the food and beverage industry, is that I actually see cooking going that way. And I've I've gotten kind of two major uh, studies that I looked at across consumers and uh, Americans, uh, one at the beginning of my career and one towards the end. And what I was kind of surprised to find was that the percent of people who both love to cook and do it quite often has been cut uh, by a third from about 15% of Americans to 10%. So it wasn't large to start, and it's even shrinking further. So about 15 years ago, uh, about 15% of people said, I really like to cook, and now it's down to 10%. Yeah, and I think I think the nuance is um, someone might like to cook, and I might like to cook one particular dish, or I might like to cook every now and then when family comes together. The the people that I was really looking at was people who love to cook and do it a lot. These are people who love and care about a category and spend a lot of money and time on it. And that was my interesting observation was that these cooking super consumers, they love to cook and they do it a lot. That population is shrinking. And the reason why that's important is that they drive a disproportionate share of kind of food and beverage revenue that uh, is bought and sold at grocery stores. So if only 10% of people like to cook and do it a lot, um, uh, what are the other 90% of people doing? <laughs> Hating life, I think, is kind of what's going on. <laughs> so you, you have a bunch of people who 
they cook often because they kind of have to. They don't really have another alternative. And, you know, kind of as you were alluding to the mac and cheese of yesteryear, that's kind of what their go-tos are because they're busy and they don't have time and they don't like it. And so, you know, there aren't many businesses that can thrive for decades uh, going forward um, when people who do it a lot don't fundamentally care about it or care for it. And so I think that's part of the problem that's going on is that there's a lot of people who cook right now who don't like it and that there are people who do like to cook, but um, they don't have the time to do it. And that, frankly, for them, uh, food service or eating out at a restaurant has become a lot cheaper. It's become a lot better. There's a lot more varieties you can pick and choose from in new models like delivery and meal kits. And, and so what's kind of happening is that even though you might like it, but if you don't have the time and there are better options, then you're just going to do it less as well. And it sounds like, you know, you talked about sewing before. It sounds like also when you start to lose a skill in a society, most people do not teach their kids how to sew. I don't know how to sew. I'm not, you know, going to teach anybody how to sew. Um, but when you start to lose a skill, then people stop passing it down. And then their children grow up thinking, I don't know how to cook. Nobody cooked around me. And they ha- they encounter the same issues, I assume. Yes. And I, I think that's the inevitable kind of uh, tide that you see is that is really hard to change. Like you can do something about it yourself, but uh, the inability to get an older generation to pass along recipes and skills and, and, and just kind of uh, the the 10,000 uh, hours you have to put into getting good at something, you know, per Malcolm Gladwell, like that's all just going away. And so you're going to see this gradual degradation of cooking skill. Uh, the bar- and, and conversely with that, um, you have the whole advent of food TV has become really popular, which... Uh, part of the reason why I was surprised by my data was that you figure that with all the explosion of, you know, uh, the Food Network and Ugly Delicious on Netflix and cooking shows and whatnot, that people would be cooking more. But I actually think what's happened is that the advent of food TV and the explosion of it has raised the bar and made it that much more complicated and uh, intimidating for people to cook. And the the, the image that I have is uh, my high school chemistry teacher played the cello, but he, the last time he played was when he sat uh, next to Yo-Yo Ma in college. And he was so despondent at how good Yo-Yo Ma was and how bad he would you know always be compared to him that he just stopped playing. And I think that's actually more of what's happening now today than not when it comes to cooking. Huh. The bar is impossibly high, and you're so watching the yo-yo moss of, of cooking on TV. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen in the last few years, um, and you mentioned this, uh, the rise of boxed meal kits, the kind of like the HelloFresh, the blue aprons of the world. Um, is that happening at the margins and like not that many people are doing it? Or is this the kind of thing that you think is changing the game somehow in terms of cooking? What is actually changing the game is the delivery aspect of it versus the product itself. So I've been looking at the meal kit uh, space for some time. And what you notice is that there's a lot of churn. Like people aren't particularly loyal to Blue Apron or HelloFresh. And what I'm, I'm unsure of is if they're unloyal to the brand or to the category overall. Because to me, um, meal kits are solving for one part of the problem, which is grocery shopping. Um, but it didn't actually solve them for cooking because the meals themselves, they take, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And um, I think there are a few that are doing better that have meals that are under 30 minutes. But really, um, 
to me, unless the bar gets to below 15 minutes or so, then I don't actually think meal kits will survive in, in the long run um, because, number one, it's still uh, a lot of work cooking. They're solving for shopping, not cooking. And remember, the premise of the whole piece that I have is that cooking is what's going away and is the hardship there. And the second part of it is I, I think that it's a little bit too highfalutin in the sense that the recipes are pretty exotic and they're kind of designed for people who have nothing but time to cook and try new things. And my sense of that is that the people who have that time would either uh, learn how to do it themselves or they'll go out to eat. But um, I don't think that the model is quite solved for it just yet because they haven't addressed the fundamental problem, which is people don't like to cook as much. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Eddie Yoon. He recently wrote about how Americans are cooking less in the Harvard Business Review. You've talked about that uh, grocery stores, perhaps, and maybe big food companies, too, have to kind of rediscover a commitment to, like, technological innovation. And I just wonder if you can talk about, like, what are you talking I think to a lot of people, it's like soup, cereal, how is that technological? Where is technology to be found in that equation? Yeah, great question. So this is kind of requires us to take the wide angle lens on the food industry. And so canned soup or the, the whole notion of canning food was a technological marvel 100 plus years ago in that Ironically, the food industry was ahead of kind of Louis Pasteur's pasteurization theory and and kind of science on that. And that a lot of these food companies, you know, bird's eye created the frozen foods category. And, you know, at the turn of the century, you had kind of um, uh, the advent of electricity, you had the automotive, and you had refrigeration. And these are the things that kind of came together to create the frozen foods industry. And so that that only happened as a result of the same kind of technological advancement that we look at today with the internet and social media and mobile phones it's it's very similar in that regard and that in the notion that these um food companies were ahead of science in terms of uh, uh bringing new innovation so if you thought about the you know in a world where things were not uh refrigerated or preserved canned food was an amazing innovation that probably saved a lot of lives. And I don't think people think of food and beverage brands as things that save lives anymore. And partly, I I think it's a little bit of, you know, the brands today think of themselves as marketing and innovation companies. And they believe that their job is to come up with the next color of a label of a can or to come up with the next ad that makes people, you know, smile and want to buy their food again. And they've kind of lost their way as, you know, you were once technological giants on the order of Facebook and Google and Amazon. If you were to go back and re-embrace the technology that's there, and if you look at uh, what's going on beyond meat and impossible foods, the kind of whole plant-based meat phenomenon is pretty remarkable. And the notion of being able to re-embrace technology again, I think it's just such an untapped opportunity. And most of, I know a lot of these big companies and a lot of the executives who run them, and the R&D people there, I think are some of the brightest people, but some of the most lonely in that they are sitting on technologies and assets that it's just hard for them to convince the business leads to bring them to market because they might actually pose a threat to the current core business. And so I think people are kind of stuck in a catch-22. Do you have a sense, can you see forward a little bit as to what some of those technological breakthroughs might potentially be if food companies were willing to give them a shot? Yeah, so there, the my one that is my favorite right now is called MATS. It's the acronym for Microwave Assisted Thermal Sterilization, and uh, it's a fancy way of describing how do I make food shelf stable or at room temperature 
safe to eat. And so if you think about what, say, canned food is like Chef Boyardee, right? Right. Um, the way that it can stay room temperature is that it's put through a process where it goes through a lot of high pressure and a lot of high heat. And that's how they kill all the microbes in it. But it ends up destroying the food quality as well. So you get kind of mush coming out of it, right? Um, MATS is a technology that uses microwaves and, and very kind of pinpoint algorithms to identify where specifically to preserve the food. It's done very quickly, relatively speaking, uh, without min- a lot of temperature. And so what it allows for, it's, it's actually FDA approved. It's commercialized in Japan and Belgium. But Kara, it would allow me to create a, a, a freshly piece cooked of, say, coho salmon from the Pac Northwest. And I could package it and leave it at room temperature for weeks, if not months, on end. And the reason why that's important is that I, I think consumers are still going to have a problem like, oh, wait, you want me to eat that piece of salmon that's been out there for three months? Maybe not. But it allows for really innovative distribution in that if you think about, say, like one of the predictions that I have is one of the big food companies will kind of wake up and realize that they should buy Domino's pizza, in part because uh, pizza is a legal narcotic and people love that. But they are an amazing <laughs> technology company, right? I mean, not only distribution from a driver's perspective, but um, you can order pizza on an app. They're testing autonomous driving with a partnership with Ford. They are as much of a tech company as they are a food company. And I think of a world where Domino Pizza or Uber uh, Eats is going around and there's one wonderful shelf-stable quality foods that are in the back of the trunks, ready to serve people on a moment's notice. And that um, this is important because the same microwave-assisted thermosterilization, what it allows for is cleaner labels because you now have an incentive to put better quality ingredients there, fresher ingredients that you can preserve and sterilize. And this is a technology that I know Amazon and Whole Foods, they're looking quite closely into, but a lot of the big food companies have had this technology or have been aware of it. And they're not really doing much with it because they they lack the imagination or the risk tolerance or the business model to really commercialize it. And so, you know, in, in some ways I don't blame them. And in other ways, I, I kind of wish that they would do more with it. But I actually think that this whole issue of food insecurity could really be solved for with, you know, better shelf-stable foods that are higher quality. The notion of food inequality in terms of uh, you know, lower income people not having good access to good nutrition, act, that problem can be solved for with this technology. And I just I'm waiting for somebody to figure out how to make uh, money on it, because that's the way that it'll get commercialized. But there's great technology out there like that that are just waiting to come to the forefront. Hmm. Um, I mentioned the huge decline in people making visits to the grocery store, uh, 30 percent dip in just the last dozen or so years. Um, And as a consequence of that, a lot of Companies that sell food in the grocery store are hurting, Campbell Soup among them. Um, Are there grocery stores or it could be other kinds of food stores that are making it work, that really are bringing people in? Yeah. So um, the the ones that come to mind, there certainly are very strong glimmers of hope there. So Trader Joe's obviously has done quite nicely as an expanding. And in in part, I I think of... um, (laughs) <laughs> the the reason why it's such a small footprint is that I think I always think of it not just as a traditional grocery store, but it's probably the world's greatest convenience store with great snacks and candy, right? I mean, really, that's what it is. It's like there's some produce and some meat and wine there, but um, there's lovely amounts of chocolate and candy and chips and other snacks that are really kind of delectable. And that's what kind of brought, brings people into the store. And uh, they have figured out that, you know, you need some baseline of produce and 
and frozen foods that they made a big bet on. So I, I actually think that um, when you go into a Trader Joe's, you see kind of the future there in terms of what they've gotten rid of and what they've kept and what they've expanded there. Because they the, the relative shelf space that they've allocated is actually quite smart and uh, future looking as well. And then there are other chains like uh, Amariano's in the Chicagoland area where you can buy freshly cut pieces of uh, meat. And they will grill and cook it for you right then and there, which I think is a very nice compromise where you could um, still buy uh, fresh, as it were, but you know you kind of get the either the convenience or call it the expertise. You know, the guy, the guy at Mariano or the gal there that's running the grill, that prob- person probably has ten thousand hours into how do you cook a perfectly you know medium rare steak, but you don't have to worry about doing it yourself in a way that ruins something that's very expensive, and so. I right. see that a lot of grocery stores, either they're changing the assortment that they have or they're adding value-added services um, where it's a little bit of a hybrid between um, shopping and they're doing just a little bit more of the cooking. Uh, you're going to see kind of, um, if you think about the gulf between buying in a grocery store and cooking it yourself at home to eating out, every version in between will exist, I think, in the next 10 years, uh, which is why I don't think that meal kits are exactly the answer, but it's just one part of the full equation that's about to come forward. Hmm. Eddie Yoon is the founder of the advisory firm and think tank Eddie Would Grow. Eddie, thanks so much. Thanks, Kara. This was fun. We'll have Yoon's Harvard Business Review article about the decline of the grocery industry at our website and more about the rocky path ahead for food companies, whether they sell soup or cereal. That's all at innovationhub.org. Most restaurant owners are not former spies. They haven't escaped wartime occupation or walked for months to safety. Most restaurant owners also are not owners because their friends backed out of a lease, leaving them with an unoccupied restaurant. But most restaurant owners are also not Cecilia Chang, a woman who did open a restaurant because her friends decided they didn't want to open a restaurant. And the landlord told Chang, too bad, you have already leased this place. And Chang's story gets even more interesting from there. The restaurant she opened, The Mandarin in San Francisco, was one of the restaurants that most changed America, according to historian Paul Friedman. The menu actually had instructions for how to eat northern Chinese food because Cantonese food at that time was so dominant. Friedman says that restaurants not only change what we eat, but they change our culture and our habits. In fact, 2015 was the first year that Americans spent more on restaurants and bars than they did on groceries. Friedman is a professor of history at Yale and author of the book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He says the degree to which restaurants can impact people, whether they're famous or just little storefronts that only a few people know about, is quite incredible. One of the restaurants in this book is Howard Johnson's. Another is a chain that was popular in the Northeast called Schraft's. And people, their eyes will, you know, start to tear with nostalgia talking (laughs) about these places. 
So uh, you talk in 10 Restaurants That Changed America about the first real modern restaurant being a place called Delmonico's uh, in New York City, which is still there. Um, But I want to talk about a place that you just mentioned, a little bit less fancy, Howard Johnson's. Um, I I think a lot of people remember it. I certainly remember it. Um, But talk about how Howard Johnson's revolutionized eating in America in this kind of standardized way. It was a place that is remembered with nostalgia, but remembered for rather bland food. In fact, it was quite innovative in its food as well as in its marketing. Howard Deering Johnson uh, was an entrepreneur who developed a kind of ice cream that was richer than the standard ice cream. So he began as an ice cream stand owner in the uh, period just after the First World War. But he established restaurants along the roadsides of the growing highways of an automobile-infatuated America. Mm. This was not the first of such restaurants, but most of those restaurants were kind of unpleasant, truck stop, hash house kind of places. They didn't feel they had to offer you very good food because you weren't going to be coming back anyway. Howard Johnson's developed a wholesome, hygienic, predictable, family-friendly image, all of which we kind of take for granted, but that actually had to be invented at a certain Mm. time, the certain time being the 1920s. And the Depression, far from killing that, actually was good to Howard Johnson's. People continued to drive for pleasure. They took their kids. And that was the era, the 30s, when Howard Johnson started to dominate the highways. When it seems like, as you say, it's a car restaurant. I mean, restaurants in general before that, I would guess, would be like in the center of cities where populations are, where people are going to be going by and coming in. But this was meant for for a different kind of technology and a different group of people. Yeah. So you can't have fast food without Howard Johnson's as the model, even though they had a fairly extensive menu. But the standardization that you were talking about, the predictability, they had a certain look. They had an orange roof with a sort of blue design. And after the Second World War, a very distinctive kind of modernist shape. The purpose of that was so that you could see it ahead in time to pull over. In the 1920s, other restaurants would have billboards. Howard Deering Johnson thought that was tacky. (laughs) In order then to alert you, you had to have a distinctive look. And, of course, the fact that you had a distinctive look and a distinctive product or set of products meant that people knew what to expect. Now, in our age, we want originality. We want artisanal food. We want creative stuff. But until relatively recently, people wanted to know what they were going to get. They loved predictability. They knew they would get the fried clam strips or the uh, ice cream or the they served frankfurters in a kind of triangular bun that had butter on it. It's very distinctive, but also eminently predictable. But, you know, I would argue we still really like predictability. I mean, that is a lot of the appeal of everything from McDonald's to, you know, Sweet Green, which is a salad chain. I mean, it is the same from one store to another store to another store. And I think, yes, people, I mean, I agree, people do like novelty, but I think people also like knowing that Applebee's is Applebee's and like you can go in there and 
you know, get something that you know about. You can get the fajitas. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That. People yes. want a combination of predictability and creativity. So a place like Sweet Greens or Chipotle that produces a semi-custom-made product, even if you order the same thing every time, then you get the best of both worlds. So that's kind of the magical place now. But for the period in which Howard Johnson's flourished, just like for the period in which McDonald's ruled the roadways, uh, a more absolute kind of predictability, hold the personal attention, hold the creativity. There are some, you know, Burger King advertised on the basis of have it your way, which is a little bit of a nod to creativity. But of course, nobody's really fooled that this was, uh, you know, an individually produced uh, lovingly curated product. So I want to talk about another restaurant. It's still around today. You can go visit it. Um, it's called Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, started by Alice Waters. And I think it's kind of a funny thing to say about a place whose whose motivating force is pretty much let's offer fresh local ingredients. But this is a restaurant that set off an avalanche of food trends that I think it's it's pretty fair to say still reverberate more than 40 years after the place started. That's certainly right. And so there are really two things here. One is the impact of Chez Panisse. When I mentioned this project to people who were involved in restaurants or food, and I said I was going to look at 10 restaurants without naming them, people would immediately say, oh, well, Chez Panisse has got to be one of them. Hmm. So I've had some pushback on some of my restaurant choices. No one has ever said, oh, what, what's Chez Panisse doing there? Huh. Uh, you can't have fresh, local, seasonal, cured, the, the whole panoply of the adjectives that we use now for restaurants without Chez Panisse. And what you said is correct, that it's hard to imagine when that was new, when that was a weird right. innovation. Right. Successful innovations always later appeared to be natural and to be inevitable. What characterized most American dining, but also supermarkets and what people bought was a different kind of innovation before the 1970s, and that was variety. America was never very good at producing very high quality, and American consumers didn't really demand necessarily that the produce be seasonal, that the meat be as highly flavored and as rich as possible. What they wanted, they were willing to substitute intrinsic quality for variety. So the ice cream might be made in a factory, but it came in 28 flavors. The uh, orange juice might be carted up from Florida in metal trucks, but it comes in, you know, Grove Stand or some pulp or no pulp or calcium added right. to it. The basic model of the American food industry, and it's not a conspiracy or anything like that, this is what people until recently preferred, is to offer you all kinds of different choices. So it's not just tomato sauce. It's tomato sauce with garlic, with basil, with additional olive oil, uh, with uh, clams. But it's still an industrial product. What's hard for the American food industry to deliver on, but now it's certainly trying just because of the pressure of the model established by Chez Panisse, is freshness, is seasonality, is some kind of close connection with what this thing originally was as a plant or an animal. 
And that's tough because it's not scalable. What do you think that the role of the restaurant in America is now? Because it, I mean, it's enormous. If you think about food that is not made in the home, that's a lot of the food that we eat. I mean, some of the food we might take back to our houses that was made at a restaurant and some food we eat at the restaurant. But when you think about a, restaurants and culture right now, what, what do you see happening? I guess two things, maybe one good, one bad. The good is that restaurants like Chez Panisse, obviously, but many others have taught us a lot about what's possible, what things can taste like, how to eat better, how to integrate vegetables into your diet as more than just side dishes, for example, or when asparagus is at its best in the place that you live in. On the other hand, and less favorably, the fact is that if you're interested in health, uh, you should cook your own food. Restaurants are developed, really, their whole purpose is to get you to eat a lot of food. And their success is based on large portions and on uh, food that's flavorful, which includes putting a lot of salt in the food. So generally, if you cook at home, you have more control over how much you're eating and over what you're eating. So the fact that more money is spent on dining out than on groceries, as you said at the opening of the program, is probably not a good thing for Mm. the uh, overall health of the uh, American population. Uh, On the other hand, as I said, the restaurants also show us some ways of eating well, well both in the sense of health, uh, healthful and well in the sense of enjoyably. Paul Friedman is the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He's also a professor of history at Yale. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also have production help from Wen Lei and Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.